Those are actual epitaphs on uh, stones. The text was just changed so that you could read it. Um, people actually have those on tombstones. And, and you ever wonder about that? You ever think about what you would have on your tombstone, what your epitaph will read? What will you be remembered for? What do you want to be remembered for? Uh, I know for some people that's really, it's, it's so far out and it's hard for you to think about that. I was just at my uh, brother's wedding in Charlotte the other day and it was really cool to hear uh, a lot of his friends and people around him uh, toasting and congratulating and so much was said about his faith and about being a godly man, a person who really loved, a person that really uh, was a good friend. And uh, so maybe for some of you who are a younger set, maybe you can think about that. How do you want to be, uh, how do you want people to talk about you at your wedding? When your, your groomsmen and your bridesmaids are all around, uh, how will they toast you? How will they uh, remember you and uh, the, the years that you've spent together so far? And uh, I, I think it's a really good question to ask. What do you want to be remembered for or what do you stand for? And I think it's a question that a lot of people don't think about. You know, there's a whole lot of people in our country who have a, a real low perception of the Christian faith and those bad impressions came from somewhere. They, they came or were reinforced with run-ins with people who have a, a malformed or immature faith or uh, came from those who have an innocuous cultural faith, which I don't really call faith at all. I just call religion. Uh, the sad thing about this is that those who stand outside the Christian faith looking in seem to have an understanding of what churchgoers are against but they have no idea what the Christian faith and what Christ followers are really for. They know what they're against, but they don't know what they're for. You know, they perceive Christianity and churchgoers against homosexuals, against certain politics, against real soul transformation. You're like, really? I thought that's what we we're about. I'll tell you about that one in a minute. Against people who are not like them, basically is how they perceive uh, churchgoers. So what, I mean, what would you give for those people who have that perception? What would you give for those people to understand and know that God is for them and not against them? It seems that there's a lot of churchgoers who are also firm about what they're against, but unsure what they stand for. So what, what about you? What do you stand for personally? What would people say about you? What about us who are a part of Highland Christian Church? I know that we've just taken some time to talk about those things that we battle, the things that we, we put on our gloves for. I mean, but it's mostly those, those personal battles that we fight against despair, against pride, against our flesh. Those are the things that we should fight for. But remember that verse in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14 that I shared with you where it says, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be men of courage, be strong. And it's all these poses that, I, that you kind of think of stances like this. It's like fighting stances. And the last sentence is, do everything in love, which to me, it, it, it seems like it's this kind of pose, this kind of stance. And it's hard figuring out as Christ followers, how do we do both? How do we fight against those personal demons and those things that we should put our gloves on for and at the same time really have this open stance of love and receptivity? It's tough. How will we be remembered? How will we be remembered? You know, 
I, I want to turn again this week to uh, some of my personal reading in the gospel according to Matthew. And it's in chapter 26 that I, I really landed. And, and right in there, there are two accounts about two meals where something is being poured out. And the first incident occurs two days before Passover uh, when Jesus is really preparing to face the cross. I mean, his, his, he's set, he's going, he's telling his disciples, I'm going to be mistreated, I'm going to hand it over, I'm going to be arrested, and, and, and then I'll be, I'll be killed. And on the third day, and, and the disciples are just scratching their head going, what? I don't get it. And, uh, and so he's trying to keep his focus on what he's got to do. And uh, so he goes into the city, and he's saying these things, and things are getting stirred up. But each evening, he goes out of the city, and he stays in Bethany, about two miles out of Jerusalem, and he stays in someone's house, and he has dinner. And, uh, and one particular night, he has dinner in the home of a man named Simon the leper. And obviously, he's not a leper anymore. Obviously, he ran into Jesus somewhere earlier down the line, and he's been made well, because uh, nothing's said about his leprosy. Uh, but we assume that's part of the story. Now, during the dinner, uh, while they're eating, and again, you know, they're not sitting at tables like we do, but they're, they're reclining, laying down at the table eating. And uh, during dinner, in comes this woman with an alabaster jar, which is an expensive type stone, and it was filled with a very expensive type perfume. And she uh, takes this jar and she opens it up. Now, sometimes with these jars, they're sealed with a wax uh, sometimes you couldn't maybe twist that off, and so you just you broke the top off. You, you hit it on the side of something and broke it off. So she breaks open the jar, and then she pours out this expensive perfume on Jesus' head right during the middle of this meal. Now the disciples, when they see this, their first reaction is, is they're indignant. They're mad. They can't believe that there's such waste. And their comment is this, this perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Think of the difference this could have made. And here it was just poured out, wasted on Jesus. Well, I guess the disciples, I, I'm not sure what they were thinking. If, you know, they were remembering when Jesus had fed the multitudes, you know, he fed 5,000 and, hey, pick up the leftovers. And they got 12 basketfuls. And, and then he feeds the 4,000. Well, pick up the leftovers and there's seven basketfuls left. And I guess the disciples, maybe they were thinking, hey, Jesus doesn't like things to go to waste. So, you know, they're, they're the waste busters, down with waste, down with waste. And they make this comment to this woman in such a way that it's, it's very condescending, almost judgmental. And, and listen to, uh, you know, and, and, you know, in this, I mean, is it so bad? I mean, to, you know, they're, they're talking, they were against poverty. They were against waste, you know. Well, those aren't bad things to be against. No, but, but look at Jesus' response to the disciples and what he says. And he says this. Why are you bothering this woman? Leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. A beautiful thing. The poor you'll always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured out this perfume on my body, she did it prepare me for a burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about this woman and what she did. She's remembered for something. What did she do that was so memorable? What is it? Why is it that Jesus pointed this out? She did something extravagant 
for Jesus. Something beautiful. She poured out what she had on Jesus. I mean, think about how did she come by this expensive jar of perfume? I mean, was it, was it something from her nest egg that she, she was saving? Uh, or, or maybe it was something she pulled out of her hope chest or was, was supposed to be a wedding dowry or a wedding gift? I mean, or, or was it she saving it for her kids to help them have a good start in life? Or, I mean, it could have been her whole retirement plan. We don't know. But what she did is she took something very special, very precious, something costly, something valuable, and she poured it out for Jesus. It was an extravagant and a bold move. And right in the middle of a meal, as if she and Jesus were the only ones in the room, it didn't matter what other people thought to her. Everyone there criticized her for it, but Jesus said it was beautiful. And guess what? It's what this woman is remembered for, and that memory has left an impression for 2,000 years. She broke the jar, and she poured it out for Jesus. Well, I wonder, do you got some jars setting up on your shelves of your life that need to be broken open and poured out for Jesus? Are, but are you holding them back? I mean, what do you want personally to be remembered for? What, what does this church want to be remembered for? I mean, I hope that we would want to be remembered as a people who broke the jar and who extravagantly poured it all out for Jesus. Further in chapter 26, in another meal following this one, Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples, and we're told by the Apostle John that Jesus showed the full extent of his love. Jesus pours out his love through an act of service and begins washing their feet like a slave would. You know, and he had told his disciples earlier to go make preparations for the, the Passover meal, and someone forgot to hire a servant to wash everyone's feet as they came in. And that was kind of the custom. And especially when you reclined at a table when you're eating, someone's stinky feet in your face, that just wasn't a good thing. So it was, it was common practice to do this, but it was also kind of a thing of the lowest man on the totem pole gets to wash the feet. And guess what? None of the disciples were going to budge to do it and make the move of this lowly act of service. So Jesus shows his followers, his disciples there that night, if you love me, if you love me, you're going to love the people around you. If you love me, you'll do as I've done. You'll serve. Serve those around you. You know, isn't that such a different posture than the I'm against attitude? Isn't it a totally different posture and attitude? You know, the church is perceived as, as being against homosexuals. You know, what would happen if we washed the feet or served the homosexuals in proximity to us in our work, in our schools, in our neighborhoods? What would pouring ourselves out in an extravagant act of friendship toward a homosexual relate to them? Maybe that God really loves them? You know, yes, 
Yes, we, we, we can't erase the truth that as Christ followers, we find our identity in Jesus and not in our sexuality. Yes, we can't erase the truth that in God's Word that homosexual acts are a sin and that continuing in that sin does not lead to the kingdom of God. But I hope in your truth-telling that you're just as emphatic about heterosexuals committing sexual acts outside of marriage, that you're just as emphatic about anyone stealing, that you're just as emphatic about anyone slandering, that they're also sinning in a way that does not lead to the kingdom of God. Now, we believe our God is sovereign, but we also believe he is merciful. And for all of us, he allows us to make our choices, doesn't he? And he still causes the rain to fall on us and the sun to shine on us all. You know, what would happen if you imitated the Father in this and you poured out on someone who perceives condemnation from the church? I think it could change things. You know, for those who perceive churchgoers as, as only judgmental, what would happen if you poured out your own story of where you came from and the sin of your past. You know, sometimes we put on this, this air of, of superiority and we stop acknowledging the imperfections of our own lives. You know, here in Matthew 26, Peter starts getting into a little bit of that, some of that superiority. And he says this, Jesus, everyone else, everyone else, they might deny you, but me, I'll never deny you. You know, and, and, you know, Peter, he's pouring out boasting. And it's a boasting all about himself. You know, I can see Jesus just looking at him and saying, Peter, I love you, but shut up. <sighs> you know, Peter then failed. He failed at the very thing he boasted he would never do. He denied Jesus three times. Not just once, but three times. Our judgment of others is taking us on this same air of superiority. You know, yes, we still call sin, sin. But when I say judge, I mean to point out someone's wrong in a way that puts them down or makes them feel excluded or inferior or marginalized. Sometimes a person can even put others down to build themselves up. You ever been around someone like that? It's not fun. Nearly every time you do that sort of thing, you can be sure that you are heading for a crash just like Peter did. You know, what if instead of boasting and pouring out stuff about all the good things that we're going to do, we just boasted in the cross of Jesus? You know, how, how do you do that? How do you boast in the cross of Jesus? I wonder if maybe it'd be a little bit like this. It'd be like saying this to, to a friend. You know what? I have been forgiven a lot. I have no condemnation for you because I stand for, before Jesus and he doesn't condemn me. You know, the forgiveness I was given was poured out on me and I freely pour it out on you, friend. You know, Jesus has washed away my deepest sins, my most guilty stains. That's good. But I haven't forgotten. I haven't forgotten what that was like. You know, that's how maybe pouring out your boasting in the cross would sound like. 
You know, does that even have a, a hint of condemnation in it? No. You know, outsiders to the church also perceive churchgoers and what they talk about is highly politically charged. You know, it seems a good number of churchgoers are, are politically against certain things. And I know that we live in this world and, and I know that we have certain responsibilities to maintain a government that permits freedom and protects its citizens and I'm, I, I'm, I'm all for that. But, but as Christ followers, don't we now belong to a new kingdom under a new rule? God's kingdom? Isn't it true that though we are in the world, we're no longer of it? Jesus seemed to talk about his kingdom and the coming of the kingdom of God a lot. I don't know about you, but, but when, when I grew up going to church, if, if you grew up going to church, I didn't hear a whole lot that phrase, kingdom of God. I didn't hear much about that. Did you? You know, for many, it's, it was rare. But here, here's another question. Not about the kingdom of God, but about kind of the kingdoms here on this earth. I mean, how many of you are sick and tired of politicians and their lack of action and effectiveness, whether it's Republican, Democrat, Independent, Libertarian, or whatever the little party name is? How many of you are just sick of it? I am. And I believe that I'm not the only one. I believe that there are people looking for a new government and keep looking for it here in our political systems. And they aren't going to find it, no matter who's elected and how many promises they make. Doesn't matter which party it is, you'll be dissatisfied. But I believe that the longing for a new government will only be fulfilled in that government that rests on Jesus' shoulders. His government, His kingdom. And it's coming, folks. It's going to come. What would happen if we began being a people who poured ourselves out for our king and for his kingdom? You know, instead of pouring over the latest political talk shows, we instead intensely searched the scriptures for details about the kingdom and how we could participate in the coming of that kingdom. Didn't Jesus teach us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? Doesn't that prayer indict us and say that we want to be those people? that help bring about his kingdom, that he is a king that rules our hearts and that part of that kingdom is right here and that we submit to that new rule. When we say your will be done on earth, aren't we saying in our prayers, Lord, I'm willing to be one of those people that carries out your will? Yeah. What if someone didn't remember the political party that you subscribed to but instead remembered you as one who stood for the kingdom of God. You know, sometimes the perception of outsiders have of churchgoers is that they're against deep spiritual transformation. And I know some of you are kind of like, what? I mean, isn't that what we're all about? I mean, how could they get that perception? Well, because they believe that we've boiled it down to this little shallow transaction. Say some magic words, and poof, you're in a different status, a different state. And, they, and, 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 and it's, it's just a scratch-your-head kind of moment for the world. 
Because that, it's, it's kind of like, is that really what the Christian faith is all about? That it's just about a conversion moment? Is it just about a quick number of words being believed and repeated to get saved? Is that what it's been reduced down to? You know, I, I had a professor ask me once, you know, hey, what do you believe about salvation? Do you believe it's an event or a process? Is it this thing that happens in a moment or is it something that happens over time and slowly? And, and we were all kind of scratching our heads. But you know what? I do believe that it's an event. There's a moment somewhere in time that as, as, as humans we can't always pinpoint but th- there is an event where we cross over out of the kingdom of darkness in- into the kingdom of light. And sometimes you can mark that, you can see it and go, that's, that's when I know it happened. But you know, there's also a process God is working. You know, because I can look back way in my life, I can look at things like even how God placed me in a certain family and moved my family to a certain neighborhood where we went to a certain church where God used that to reach my heart and grab my attention. And even at a time when I wasn't looking for him or thinking of him or even cared about him, but he was weaving and working a process to try to bring me back to himself. It's amazing what God does and the links that he goes to. And maybe we need to acknowledge that a little more and understand that we're given the appearance that there's just this hasty embrace of some sort of costless form of Christianity. But you and I know that salvation, though it was free to us, it cost Jesus, didn't it? We know we're saved by faith alone. But we also know that Jesus calls those who are saved He calls them to follow him at a cost, doesn't he? But how many of us here, given a different situation, a different little metaphor here, how many of us here, if if a financial guru walked into this place and and, and we we just would go, oh yeah, I'm going to hand over all my financial assets to this person who claims that he's an expert at financial management and who's going to take me down the path of, of a happy ending with my finances. So I'm just, I'm just going to do it. None of us would do that with somebody that we just met. We would all be suspicious. I mean, if there was some point that that financial guru, uh, uh, that, that there was some point he made that, we, that attracted us, we would investigate it first. We go, is that true? It sounds good, but... Man, it sounds a little bit too good. So I, I'm going to do my research. I'm going to find out what that's about. We would especially want to know more about the background of this so-called expert. I mean, who is he? Where does he come from? Where does he get his training? What's his track record? Don't you see it's the same with faith in Jesus Christ? I mean, who would turn over everything willy-nilly, everything dear to them, to someone they didn't know? Do you understand that, that sometimes the skeptic, skepticism that the world has, it's just a logical thing with someone that you don't know. And, and you say, here's the person that you're going to follow all the rest of your life. And they're like, whoa, wait a minute. That's a big step. I need to know something about this Jesus I, and his claims and what he says. Is that really true? It sounds good. But I, I need to research that. And who is this Jesus? Where does he come from? You know, Jesus is the expert on life and wants to lead us down the path to a happy ending. But 
But if you're going to follow someone the rest of your life, you might want to know something about this Jesus. You might want to know something about the people that represent Jesus. I mean, are they trustworthy? Are they genuine? Are they truly a friend? You know, we say to those skeptical of Jesus, you just got to know him. You just got to know him. But you know what? Maybe they need to get to know you. I mean, is it, is it really so good as you're saying? I think I'm going to watch your life, and I'm going to see if what you're saying is really true because I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about this. So I'm going to watch you. I mean, I mean, are you really, are you smoking the crack you're selling? That's how some people would say it. You know? What if we poured ourselves out in friendships to be truly known so that Christ could be known through us? What if we poured ourselves out regardless of what those friends decide about Jesus? I think that maybe they would then know that there was something genuine in you that came from him. You know, what could friendship overcome? What could our loyalty to the kingdom overcome? What could love overcome? Couldn't it overcome a multitude of of irrelevance and wrongs? I believe it could. The love, loyalty, and friendship of Jesus Christ really could change things. It really could. I think we can be remembered like that woman who broke the jar and, and poured it out, poured out the perfume on Jesus. I think we could be remembered as people who poured it out for Jesus, as those who pour it out on the people around us, as those who pour it out for his kingdom, instead of people who boast in themselves and have this church swagger about themselves. Nate and the band, you guys can come on up here. The woman, she poured out her perfume. Peter, he poured out his boast. Jesus, he poured out the full extent of his love to his followers. But there's one last thing that was poured out in Matthew 26. Jesus says this, This is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has poured out so that we can be forgiven of it all, of all our sins. The deepest and darkest sins, the seemingly small wrongdoings, the sins that were committed and the sins that were omitted. His blood poured out on us. It's what Jesus Will always be remembered for, right? Yeah. Well, I want the blood of Christ poured out on me so I can stand in the company of the forgiven. More than I want to be remembered for standing for something on this earth, I want to be remembered by Him in heaven. You know, I'm, I'm with the thief on the cross. You know, I'm, I'm looking over in, in faith at him, and I'm saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me. Because I believe in this city, the people of Highland can be remembered not for what we were against, but what they stood for. And when all is said and done, when all is said and done, we're really not going to care what anybody else thinks about us. 
the outside world. You know, the only person that we're going to care what they think about us and what we stood for is the Lord. And I hope that the people of Highland will be known as those who wash their robes white in the blood of the Lamb, the forgiven. I want to be a part of that group. That's what we're for. Christ, His forgiveness, His way.